Okay. Those of you who gave it to me last week already have it, so don't send me another one. <laughs> <laughs> don't send me another one. Don't send me another one. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm starting in um, 1 Samuel 4. Um, and the story that's given to us in 1 Samuel 4 is um, a conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites. Now, um, a picture of Israel... As you remember, coastline looks like this. Israel's got the territory. The Philistines were right here, southwest of Israel um, and on the coast. They were traders. Um, they moved there long before they became a powerful army. Um, but here's a conflict that's being described to us starting in chapter 4. Um, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle. They camped uh, beside Ebenezer. They drew up battle lines to meet Israel in verse 2. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. People came back into camp, and they tried to figure out what happened. So the elders of Israel say, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And they come up with a solution. Let's go to Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And uh, the Lord will come with us, or come among us, and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So they went to Shiloh, or actually sent somebody to Shiloh, and they carried the Ark of the Covenant, who sits, uh, where the Lord of hosts sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark enters the camp of the Israelites, I mean, they go crazy. They're cheering and shouting and celebrating. They are, um, they are pumped up so that the earth shook and the Philistines were terrified. I'm now in verse 6, and they said, What's all this noise? And they heard that the Ark of the Lord has entered the camp. And here, the Philist it's clear, it seems clear, that the Philistines knew about Israel enough to know what that meant and that God had defeated the Egyptians. And so there's a reputation here. Woe to us, nothing is like this has happened before. Who can deliver us from their mighty gods? They must think the Israelites are uh, polytheistic. Um, who can deliver us from their mighty gods, who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness? Be strong, O Philistines, or we will become slaves of the Hebrews, so fight. Um, so then the Philistines went out. They fought Israel again. Um, they defeated them, um, and the slaughter again was great, with 30,000 foot soldiers killed. And the Ark of the Covenant is taken. The two sons of Eli died, both Hophni and Phinehas. So let me stop. What do you hear? What do you think? What's that say to you? It reminds me of a saying a CEO I used to work for would say a lot. You always win the pep rally. I remember that phrase. I do remember that phrase. Yeah, so they got all excited. They brought the ark in. They had their pep rally. Head of HR was giving a speech. <laughs> I, can, I can picture it in my mind. Um, that's right. 
Um, I also hear, I mean, I, I hear, I don't know what the elders thought here. The elders said, go get the ark. We need it. Um, my cynical side says, we'll make God help us. Maybe we'll trick him into, because we brought him into the camp. Um, now, maybe they trusted him. Maybe they were calling out to him, but it just makes me wonder. Um, did they have, I don't know. It was just a thought that struck me as I was reading through this this morning that um, I'm not sure what their motive was here or how they were thinking um, when it came to that. Relying on their good luck charm. Maybe. Maybe it was a, um, a charm that they thought brought magic into the camp. Um, and it, it, would, it would bring them the victory they wanted. It's interesting to me because it's been a long time since they left Egypt, but that that is the event that the Philistines are talking about. It is, isn't it? Because we've had a lot of judges and a lot of years go by. Yeah, but that's still the defining moment the of who defense. they are. Yeah. Yeah. And that he brought tumor plagues, I mean, on them. Yes. Phineas were not great representatives of God either in, in representing the ark and the kingdom. Yeah, the people I've read as I got ready for this said God had bigger plans than just a, a victory over the Philistines. He was um, going to demonstrate who he was both in judgment on the house of Eli but in judgment of the Philistines too. So there's, a, there's more going on than just the battle in, in God's mind at this time. Um, it seems like um, Israel wanted God back in the camp and brought the ark back in, but they didn't want to repent. And so they weren't really turning back to God. They were just, I think what Steve said, it was more like, <coughs> let's bring it in and give us good luck. But they weren't ready to repent and turn back to God at this time. Yeah, there's this... Um, um, let me look around. Most of you won't know this group, but there's this CD, an album now, by a group called Bastille, who has a song called Pompeii, and you know them. Really? Okay. And in the song, there's this great line, because they're talking about Pompeii, and there's judgment coming from the sky, there's the earth is shaking, and the line in the song is, what should we do first, the rubble or our sin? And I think, I think that's what we missed here. They went to the practical side. They went to the, we need an army, we need an ark, we need a... But they didn't look at the sin that got them there, um, as opposed to other stories we hear. Um, where they go back into camp and say, let's, let's inquire of God on why we lost. Something's wrong. It's, it's kind of an interesting form of idolatry. It, potentially. Uh -huh. They saw the ark as their God. Potentially, yeah. It became a, I forget what the word is, not a token, but it became a something to bring about that uh, result. Steve? put this in historic context 
uh, the ark was in Shiloh, Shiloh mm -hmm. uh, for what, 396 years, almost 400 years. This event took place about 350 years after the ark was in. So it, this was a, and of course, every uh, Israelite was expected to go to Shiloh or Shiloh once a year. And so this has been 350 years since they've gotten to the land. And so and this is a long, 350 years is a long time. It's a long time. It's a long time. And there's a good chance that Shiloh was destroyed after this. Because uh, the ark didn't go back to Shiloh. Um, there's no more recording of Sh Shiloh being, I'm not going to do it, Shiloh <laughs> um, being a city of worship. Um, in fact, it goes back to um, Ramah, which becomes Samuel's center of things. So, it, I mean, they think, and they have archaeological evidence that Sh uh, Shiloh was destroyed about this time. So there, it looks like the Philistines didn't just stop there. They said, all right, we're going we're gonna to wipe out the center too because it's been 350-some years. So it looks like they took more action than just the ark here. Yeah, this, this, uh, Shiloh <coughs> was, they think, the place where Abraham had his home, his settled there. So why did they come back to Shiloh? That's Abraham yeah. lived there, and you can see, right across the valley, you can see the tall mountain. Remember where God made the promise? You can see all the way yeah. Yeah. to the north, and you can on that particular mountain. So, it, yeah, it was a Canaanite vill, uh, village, and it's if you go there, you know, there's a lot of sites in Israel. Well, maybe yes, maybe yeah. that's where it was, but if you're standing right there at the hill and I said this is the site of the tabernacle where they set it and they said this is a number one site you can be sure this is where it was and you can you can see where the the columns of the tabernacle wow. were and you can look down on that little little, little plateau and say yeah that could be it that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah that's very cool alright other thoughts about Shiloh Okay, so if you haven't read this story before, read through this. Um, I'm going to go down to um, 12 and beyond. Eli is sitting at the gate of the city. Um, the defeat has occurred. The news has been brought back to the city. Eli's blind, so he, he can't see people tearing their clothes and throwing ashes on their head. He can't see it, but he hears the commotion. He says, all right, what does all this noise mean? And a man runs up to him and, who's 98 years old. Um, he says, I just came from the battle. Uh, your two sons are dead, and they've stolen, they've taken the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and it looks like the, and maybe the combination, but the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was taken, Eli falls over dead, breaks his neck. Um, and so the judgment of God, as he promised, was taken out on Eli for his... Uh, not complying, not following the Torah, not being a man of faith um, during um, his lifetime. And then it goes further, the daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was pregnant, gave birth. When she heard the news, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. Her father-in-law and husband were now dead. She kneeled down, gave birth for her pains, came upon her. And, a, and about the time of her death, the women who stood said, don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. 
and she named him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. The ark is gone. The presence of God is gone. Remember, God dwells above the ark. There are cherubim on top of the ark. He dwells right there on top of the ark is where the presence of God is, and now that has gone. Um, It occurred, um, it reminded me of, and I'm going to switch over to um, Ezekiel 9. I need to give you an assumption here that I have about Scripture. So I'm in Ezekiel 9. Hmm, I'm going to start. I I need to scoot back a little bit. Um, The picture here is of God leaving the temple. He, he leaves. He goes across the threshold. He's gone. And so in verse 3 it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, on which it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And then later, verse eight, chapter 10, verse 18, The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. And the cherubim departed, and they stood at the entrance of the east gates of the Lord. They left. Now, I don't, I've never read it, but that had to have been um, a, just like Eli, had to be a sickening moment in the hearts and the minds of the Jewish people. He was, A, he was in Shiloh, it was above the Ark of the Covenant, the sin got so great, and there's the context you've got to read in the book of Ezekiel. The sin got so great um, within the priesthood and within the people, God said, I can't stay. I'm leaving. And he leaves to the east. Now, you read later about the prince who will come back, and he comes back from the east. You'll read later about churches who believe that the prince, the Christ, will come back from the east. You'll see churches that built their big picture windows, the rose windows facing the east. Um, The thought is the return of God himself is going to come from the east. Um, So we have that picture now back in Samuel. Um, He has departed. He has left the people of Israel as they've taken the ark away from them um, and taken it over to put in their temple of Dagon. I'm not doing my slides here. Okay, we did that. Rebel of sin, took the ark, Shiloh destroyed. I think I've covered that one. All right, Eli dies. He's described as a, um, a heavy man. Now, this is above my, um, my knowledge, but what I read was it not just meant fat, but it meant a powerful man, that he, was, he had weight in the community, an important man in addition um, as well uh, during that time. So before I leave Eli... 
Um, I want to remind you of the test of, a, of an Eli, of a Samuel, of a prophet. And it's back in Deuteronomy. And the question was raised by the people at that time was, how will we know a prophet of God? How will we know this person is your person, your man? And so there's a test in Deuteronomy 13 that's given to um, the people, and the test looks something like this. The first part of the test is what he says will come true. But the second part of the test was even if it does come true, but it leads you away from God, don't listen to him. He's a false prophet. Now, we have... I'm coming over here now. We have that same instruction in the New Testament. If someone preaches us a gospel different, the book of Galatians, a gospel different than the one you have heard, don't listen. Same thing, same test hasn't left us in terms of how will we know. And the ultimate test is, does their message, does their, Josh called it proclamation this morning, does the proclamation lead us to God, keep us with God, or does it lead us astray? Is the, an ultimate test, even though they do what they say happens, even though I make a prediction and it comes true, even if I uh, tell you something that happens and I lead you astray, um, I'm not to listen. All right, take a breath. Thoughts, comments. All right, let's go to Dagon. I actually found a photograph of Dagon. Turns out Dagon was a god. Remember, Philistia is over on the sea. There are people of the sea. So it turns out Dagon was a god of the sea. Now, this one's probably closer to what the uh, pictures looked like at that time, but then I found this guy that I thought, if they were going to make a video today, this would be Dagon. I mean, um, he was a, a, a merman. I don't know what that is, but a, a person who was a sea, a powerful sea being that blessed the ships, the trading, um, everything that went with it. Um, Samson, you will remember when he was um, killed, when he went into the temple and pushed the, that was Dagon's temple. I mean, he brought the temple down upon the Philistines. Um, this is the same uh, creature that um, we heard about then. So here's my question. The instruction in the Old Testament about other gods, idols, is very clear and very powerful. Um, and a thought hit me that if I were to, um, and here's my thought, as countries became polytheistic, and added other deities to their, their view of the world, um, 
it struck me, and maybe I should have known this a long time ago, once you do that, you minimize our God. You minimize Yahweh. And so I have a picture in my head that is there is a God space, a God something, a map, a something. And if you start adding things to it to be worshipped in addition to, you're really saying God is not as powerful, his authority isn't there, you're making him smaller by doing that. Um, which I think may be part of why God does not tolerate it in the Old Testament. It's not just that you've added something. Now, now let me give you... Um, in the book of Numbers, chapter 22 and 23, and I won't take you back there. This is the, um, this is the story of Balaam and his donkey and, um, and Balak, who I think was the king, calls Balaam over and says, I want you to bring a curse down on the Israelites. Bring a curse down on the people of Israel um, for me. And Balaam um, says, well, let me go ask God. And God says, don't talk to them anything except what I tell you. Um, and so he comes back and he gives a blessing on the Israelites. Balaam says, no, 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 wait, let's, let's go to another place. And he takes him up on a hill. Maybe God will see things differently. The idea of multiple deities, um, at least what I can read, comes from location, function. So I may need a God of the fields so that my crops get blessed. I may need a God of the sea so that my trade gets blessed. I may, but it struck me, so why is God so upset about that? I think it's because it takes away from him. I think it minimizes him. Suddenly he is less than God because I'm starting to create this um, collection of, um, of deities as I go through this. When I add something, I'm really taking away. The second thing that struck me is um, this is not a theological exercise. God is a person. And so the description we have of him is he's jealous. You've been unfaithful, like an unfaithful wife or husband. Um, you have betrayed. Um, he tells prophets, they've rejected me, not you. And so this is a personal relationship, not just a, a theological collection of ideas. Um, this is, um, I don't know, let me stop. Thoughts? Well, I think he, Israel has some of the same problems we do. I mean, I think you get so caught up in everyday life at times, you know, God seems distant to keep him close. And you have to work at relationships. Husband mm -hmm. and wife work at staying close over the years. And I think it, they evidence the same issue. He became distant. They don't talk to him. They don't ask what he wants them to do. Strange. Yeah, there's a separation there. Mm -hmm. So, how do we think today and come over to here? How does 
that view of God and um, monotheism inform us today? This is not a trick question. <laughs> well, it's kind of like you can't have 15 CEOs in a business. There has to be one head, and God is that head. Yeah, he's, sovereign is the word we use. He's the one. I took that as a, this is a caution. Um, in our efforts to be inclusive, and accepting, be careful. That's what I heard. Just be careful. Don't lose that God is God in all of that. It doesn't mean don't be loving. I don't mean that. But, but be careful. There's a, I think, a caution that has not gone away. Um, as we think of God and his people and staying close and all those things that go with it. Thoughts? Bob? If we do something that takes away the power of God, we've taken on a terrible adversary. And uh, we're going to lose yeah, there are two phrases that, that are used in Scripture about God's judgment. One is, we saw here with the ark, God turns away, he leaves, he departs. The other is he turns against. I mean, the other is, um, to your point, um, don't take on that adversary um, but there is a second phrase that, that um, Old Testament uses that he turns towards in judgment. Not just, not, not absence of God, but uh, dealing with the Almighty God, which we're about to see with the Philistines, by the way. He turns toward them, not away from them. They don't step there anymore, yeah. But then in connecting it with that Ezekiel story, when God left the ark, when he left mm -hmm. the temple, he first stopped on the threshold. At the threshold. And that said to me, even though he's leaving his people because they're not worshiping him right now, even though he can't stay there, he still has all these idols and gods under his feet. Mm -hmm. He's standing on the threshold, which is where Dagon's head and hands were. Yeah. And even though God says, "I'm kind of out of here," you're not doing, you're not following me. He's still in control. Yeah. Oh, very much in control. In fact, I heard the uh, Dagon loses his head and his hands. Um, I heard that, uh, read that described as um, what a king does to execute a king he's defeated. So there are times when they take their hands off and there are times when they just take their head off. 
um, and that's how they execute their enemies um, upon defeat. And, and that, that was not an accidental description. That continued with Cicero. Cicero, they cut off his head in Rome. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, I can, uh, we just, uh, Paul and I just read a three-book series on the life of Cicero. And when he, he was executed by the Roman triumvirate, they cut off his head and his hands and posted it in the square. They did. As a warning to everyone else. Yeah. Well, if you lose the personal relationship that you're talking about with God, just imagine if you lost your relationship with your father, your physical father. Mm-hmm. You would be removed from any influence and he would only become a figure. And that's what happens if you lose your personal relationship with God. He just becomes a figure. He has no real influence on your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, just, I think the caution I take from that is don't forget God is person. This isn't, this isn't yeah, no, that's it. I could say it louder, but I mean the same thing. God is a person, and it's a relationship. Um, it seems to me the Israelites were simply being inclusive of the culture around them. I think that's where they got in trouble. Exactly. But I think when we read these stories, it's so easy for us to see what they did wrong. And yet when mm-hmm. we come back to today, we look at our lives, and we just don't get it. Yeah. That, that, there's my caution. Uh, that's, that's what hit me as I was reading through this. Okay, I got a couple other Frisbee theories that I not, may not get to, but let's start with, let's go to Dagon. We talked about the threshold. Um, so I won't go through all the details, but um, here's what happened. So I had two things I want to highlight. Um, Dagon has caused, is um, been knocked over twice, and suddenly there's this plague that comes upon the people of uh, the Philistines. And they're getting these uh, tumors. Uh, they're probably open sores. I mean, they're probably very visible, but swellings. And um, actually, it came with the most people I read thought it was a um, Deuteronomy 28. It was a fulfillment of the judgment of God that he would bring these plagues upon them um, and that he was fulfilling that, um, that he was bringing that judgment upon them. And when we get down to six, chapter 6, the people of uh, the Philistines are saying, we got to get rid of this thing. we got to get it off the land because it's killing us. Um, and so they decide to create, verse, chapter 6, verse 4, five golden tumors and five golden mice and put them and send them back to the Israelites. Now look at ver- chapter 6, verse 6. Back to Egypt and the Pharaoh as the defining moment. Don't harden your hearts like the Egyptians did, who he dealt with so severely. Verse 7, prepare a new cart, two milk cows, have never had a yoke on them, hitch the cows to the cart, take their calves away from them, put the ark on it, and send the ark on its way. And evidently, there were some naturalists versus people of faith. 
within the Philistine group. And the naturalist said, um, if the um, watch and see, verse 9, watch and see which way the cart goes. If it goes to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then it has done us a great evil. And if not, then we will know it is not God's hand. So we've got some people that said, look, this is an accident. We got tumors. I don't think this is a big, I mean, I'm sorry it happened, but I don't think this is a God thing. And then other people saying, this is a God thing. We got to get rid of this. So they created a test. And the test was two cows that had never been hitched to a wagon, never been trained to walk together, never been trained to cooperate and pull the wagon. In a, and they put their babies right in the background. And they didn't turn around to go back. They went straight to where they were supposed to go. And so the conclusion of the Philistines is it's a God thing. I'm glad we got rid of this. And they put in they put I'm gonna call them votives. So I gotta tell you a quick story. Um, this is the city of Epidaurus. Epidaurus is a city in Greece that um, was uh, known for its healing. You know, the, um, the medical symbol with the snakes going up and, okay, that came from here. And the reason it came from here was people went to Epidaurus for healing. And when they went there, they did several things. This is the stadium. In addition to being a hospital, a medical center, they had a place for athletics. They had a place for entertainment. So it was a town. It was a, there was a, a, a holism to healing. But here's what I want to show you. When you went to Epidaurus, you created a votive. So if my hand was sick, I created a plaster of Paris symbol of my hand, and it was part of my healing process. I think the Philistines sent votives with the ark. We want you to heal it. We want the tumors to be healed, and we want you to get rid of the mice and the rodents. Now, this is a, this was a, uh, Epidaurus was, um, this is also where if you were really sick, you went and laid down in a, a building and they let snakes crawl over you to pull the bad stuff out of your body. So there were lots of myths going on, but I think this was probably a practice in that war area of the world that you create a votive, you ask for the healing, it showed, I mean, it focused on that part of the body that needed healing. And they seem to have put these votives, this is Frisbee theory number two, these votives with the Ark of the Covenant and sent it off and said, we want healing from this. We're sending the Ark back. We want nothing to do with it anymore um, to try and uh, assuade God, get him to stop judging and to end that plague that had come upon um, the people. All right, my time has run out. I promise to pick up Frisbee Theory number three next week, um, and we'll go from there. Quick prayer, Lord God Almighty. May your spirit be upon us. May you open your word to us. 
May you lead us and care for us for this week to come. And we pray through Jesus. Amen. Thank you.